Hello, uh, this is Darren from the future. Uh, basically, just giving you a heads up, this week's episode is obviously 12 Years a Slave with the great Lee Murky joining us for this. Uh, just to let you know that we talk about spoilers for the movie from the outset. Uh, basically, we jump into discussions that get around to talk about the ending of this movie quite early on. And as host, I didn't want to shut those down because I thought those conversations were kind of worth having. I didn't want to risk derailing them or maybe not getting back to them when we circle back into the spoiler zone later. I figured the better thing to do would be to let those conversations play out naturally and give you kind of a spoiler zone for the podcast rather than a spoiler zone for the movie in a little introduction. So just to let you know, if you have not watched 12 Years a Slave, all three of us on this podcast recommend that you do uh if not feel free to jump ahead and jump into the discussion uh we really hope you enjoy i, I think this is an interesting worthy fun discussion of a movie that i i was thrilled to revisit anyway take care see you soon bye Hello and welcome to the 250, your fortnightly podcast looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me, as always, is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? I'm doing good, Darren. It's a, it's a sunny day here in County Dublin. I, uh, I like that you had to remember that. I like that it was also, <laughs> where exactly are I, we? I, I was in County Wicklow earlier. I was in County <laughs> Loud before that. Um, You're all over the east coast of Ireland. Yeah, like globetrotting if if the globe was the northeast of, 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 of Ireland, Ireland, yes. Yeah. And we have a guest who is actually globetrotting, at least like in an electronic sense. The fantastic Lee Murky is joining us again. He talked to us last year uh, about Come and See. He's coming back this week. How are you, Lee? I'm good. I'm good. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> I love 12 Years a Slave and I can't wait to talk about it. Yes. Fantastic. So basically, we we had you on last year, and it was a great time. And I've I've recorded with you before. It's like I want to get Lee back on the show, and so I reached out and I said like, what would you like to talk about? What's the movie on the list that you feel like you want to talk about? You want to have a discussion about? And you immediately got back with Twelve Years a Slave. What is it about Twelve Years a Slave that when I sent through that list, you're like, that's the one? Honestly, I think Twelve Years a Slave is not only one of the greatest films of this century so far. I think it's one of the most misunderstood. Um, and I think that how people misunderstand it sort of feeds into a lot of the prestige that has gotten over the years. I don't think that if the Academy took a sober read of this film's thematics, that they would have given it best picture. There is no way. Um, just because I can't think of a film before 12 Years a Slave that depicts slavery in such a true way. Um, and I, I can give some examples if you two don't mind. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll read a passage from a book called Afro-Pessimism written by Frank Wilderson III. Um, he is a very controversial figure in academia. And if you value uh, your happiness, you won't read it. But it's a wonderful <laughs> book as, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> All right. So he's talking about a scenario in his life um, between Josephine and his partner, Stella. Josephine is a white woman. His partner, Stella, is a black revolutionary. And there's something that happens between them that turns violent. It, it involves like radiation poisoning. And this is a true story. Um, uh, Professor Josephine had access to radiation at, at some university she worked at. And she lived underneath this black woman that she wanted to get back at. So she just started poisoning her, poisoning her with radiation. So that's the backstory to this passage. But he, he does tie it into 12 Years a Slave. So he says, quote, 
The tension between Josephine and Stella, and later between Cody and me, escalated into violence. Violence that is hard to mold into narrative because violence in a narrative must have an explanation, a trigger, a contingent moment that makes it make sense, but anti-black violence won't cooperate with narrative. The explanation bleeds out beyond the actors. It is immune to rational thinking and logical predictions. It is a force from which there is no sanctuary. It is rainproof to rebuke, for it comes as enforcement followed by the law, when violence is the law and not the effect of its enforcement, it presents the rules of narrative with a crisis because what we have is a situation that resists retelling for the simple reason that narrative's casual principle, the ghost in the machine we call the casual logic or because principle of the story is missing. This is how a black story is jinxed. There is no ghost in the machine. The reason for the violence is beyond the grasp of reason itself. There's nothing universal about it. Therefore, the only way we make it intelligible is to leave out the parts that may only be accepted by another black person, and even then, discreetly. What if you belong to a race of people with a private army under the command of their fantasies? And I, I won't continue that, but, um. Essentially, what he's saying is anti-black violence serves a higher function than some reptile brain need for um, sectarianism or tribalism. It's much deeper than that. It oriented this entire world that grew out of the out of chattel slavery. And to try to force that into narrative, you run into all of these different problems. And um, one of the things that I wanted to illustrate sort of right off the bat. Uh, through comparison, and if I'm going on too long, please let me know. No, um, no, 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 no. <laughs> but one of the things that really happened to me when Django came out in 2012 was I went to go see it. I found myself enjoying it. And on my drive home, I thought about it. And I'm like, uh, I don't know about this. Like, the more I thought about it, the more sketchy it became. So you fast forward to almost exactly a year later when 12 Years a Slave hit theaters. Yeah. And I'm sitting in the theater and I'm like, not only is McQueen not falling into the same pitfalls that Tarantino fell into, he's critiquing them. And I'll, I'll give an example. So there's a moment um, in Django where uh, he kills the Australian uh, slave transporters where Tarantino has like one of the worst His cameos cameo. of all time. With, it's so bad. With the, one of the great accents. A oh. really convincing Australian accent. <laughs> I, f I feel like his explosion redeems it. It, it does. It, it does. It does. Yeah. But in that moment, um, if you'll remember, all throughout Django, they're calling him the exceptional Negro the entire time, right? Uh, they're, they're like, you're the one in five million or, or whatever the number was. And in that moment when he kills the Australian transporters, you see this illustrated uh, visually where he walks up to the men, the black enslaved men still in the cage, afraid to leave, despite the fact that every single person with power in that scenario was dead and gone. They are paralyzed by their awe of Django. He is separated from them. He is exceptional. And to further accentuate the point, Tarantino ends on a close up of one of the most unruly slaves in that bunch. And what he's trying to convey is a sense of admiration, like on looking, like some infectious sense of revolutionary inspiration, right? But what he's actually conveying is that separation between Django and these other slaves. Whereas um, in Solomon Northup's story, you have a man who's actually exceptional, photographic memory, musical genius, can do all of these brilliant things, has all the talent in the world and the whole film is about taking that away from him with the crude swing of a leather tool right and 
the scene that you see this in that eliminates that that distance that I think is so brilliant is in the scene where the black man sees Solomon Northup's family as they walk into the, the store and he follows behind them and he's instantly confronted with his condition. He realizes immediately, oh, I'm not them. Right. And in that moment, Solomon Northup, you can kind of see maybe a little pride. He can sort of embrace the separation because he speaks directly to the master. He's like, there was no intrusion. And you get that stare between those two characters. But Solomon Northup is reflecting on this as he's accepting his new reality as a slave. So that distance is shattered between him and the person who walked in the store, as is this notion of black family. It's all gone now. Um, So before I just go on forever, that's just one of the things that I absolutely (laughs) adore about this film is that he actually pursued the truth and he didn't take easy ways out. I mean, you mentioned like just a little bit of context there. Like, again, the portrayal of American slavery in in film. Mm -hmm. Obviously, this is a film that's directed by Steve McQueen. He's a British director, uh, Granada and Trinidadian uh, parents. Um, He began as an artist uh, doing installations, made short films, uh, worked with cinematographer Sean Bobbitt, who would work on his various projects. He made Hunger, which was a uh, the film about Bobby Sands starring Michael Fassbender. And they kind of have this like Michael Fassbender. Sorry, they have this like Robert De Niro Scorsese career. Kurosawa Fune relationship. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Where they do shame together as well. But basically, what happens is he takes hunger to the States. Uh, at one of these screenings, he meets direct, He meets writer John Ridley, who's, who's obviously been around Hollywood for 20 years. You know, it's something of a controversial figure in his own right. I'm sure we'll talk about that as well. Their relationship gets somewhat contested as the film goes on, yeah. uh, which is a lot to unpack. But basically, uh, they latch onto this idea of doing a slave narrative. At the same time, while McQueen is also in the US, he's prepping for doing Shame. Uh, He has meetings with Plan B, which are Brad Pitt's production company. And Pitt calls him into a meeting and he says, look, what do you want to do? We really, we loved uh, Hunger. We see that you're going to be a big talent. We want to bring you over. What's the one thing you would like to do? And McQueen goes, well, look, my big thing is... There have been, and for some reason he specifies 57, precisely 57 movies about the Holocaust made. Um, And it's this great immeasurable tragedy. Why hasn't there been an equivalent movie made about slavery in the United States? And I mean, we can talk maybe a little bit about like the traditional portrayal of slavery in American media, particularly in cinema, how like historically it's obviously overlooked in Westerns and stuff. And, you know, you get into the 90s and you see like white filmmakers very clumsily trying to grapple with it, like Spielberg with Amistad, Demi with Beloved, um, all this sort of stuff. But like basically McQueen says, I would like to make a movie about slavery. And so... Pitt and his production partners say, okay, yeah, that sounds like something we can try to do. Um, And what's really interesting about it is that like McQueen is an outsider here. He's, he's, he's a British person. He comes over to New York. He films shame in New York. He says himself, he, he never went to Louisiana until he began to prep the film. He had never been to Louisiana before he began working prep on this movie, (laughs) 12 years a slave. And it's kind of interesting that, like, during the award season, um, one of the things, and again, we'll, we'll maybe talk about the award season as well and, like, why it's important and, like, the journey that this had to winning Best Picture. But obviously, you know, during the award season, people throw muck and there's all the inevitable kind of gossip and speculation. There's always a backlash. That, that's it, well, the backlash yeah. and, and kind of the way in which narratives get pushed. One of the big things that was pushed against McQueen was the idea that he was a British person coming in and doing this. And that, like, Tuetela Giofor, who is, like, a Nigerian-British person as well, mm-hmm. was coming in and playing this. And there was this kind of like well why are why are like british like filmmakers and actors telling this story 
And I find it really interesting that you you point out, you argue that this is like one of the great, perhaps honest portrayals or one of the first big, honest mass media portrayals mm-hmm. of slavery um, in contemporary American cinema, certainly at this level. Like, is what, like it, do you think there's anything tied to that? Do you think that it had to be an outsider to come in and make it? Um, Just in terms of ease of production, I would say so. I think a, a black American filmmaker, you know, someone like Spike Lee would have a lot of trouble making something like this without more of what we see from, you know, like white savior narratives or making this movie some heroic thing sort of bottled in this terrible institution of social death. Um, but I, honestly, I, I think the reason it turned out the way it did, and I know this isn't answering your question directly, but I, I really do think that they had a impossibly strong foundation. Everything is in the book. Um, everything there are almost no differences and if there are differences the the film pivots more into a pessimistic view of of what's happening so in in effect mcqueen and and you know ridley took the material and made it harsher and and made it more suitable for contemporary society because they were pointing at contemporary society can i ask like as somebody who's you know obviously you live in america um you are somebody who i consider to be a very educated (laughs) commentator on american culture like before the movie came out, how familiar were you with the Solomon Northrop uh, memoir, 12 Years a Slave? Um, I was, um, I had a very unique upbringing. You know, I, I come from a long line, uh, a long line of um, black educators and black revolutionaries. So Solomon Northrop's story was something that I grew up with. Um, however, as, as a person in America, slavery itself first of all, is incredibly poorly documented historically. I mean, you get nothing before the 1700s. Um, and in terms of like post-slavery commentary, like the federal papers where they interviewed the last surviving generation of slaves, uh, a lot of that work was done by the United Daughters of the Confederacy, right? And, and people who had a vested interest in painting slavery out to be the sort of banal, necessary uh, stepping stone for America to progress into a democracy. Um, I mean, I got suspended out of school for saying that the Civil War was fought over slavery, right? Like that, that happened. So slavery is, is something that's still taboo to discuss here in the States. But as someone who was growing up who was familiar with the story of Solomon Northup, looking at that reality and then looking at the media, even something like Roots, you're just like, these things don't look like, they don't, they don't feel like the same things to me, if that makes sense. I hope that makes sense. No, no, it absolutely does. I mean, like, again, it, it's it's worth... When I was doing research for this, I was obviously reading all the critical commentary around it. And there's an observation that Richard Brody made in The New Yorker, which I found very revealing and unsettling um, in its reality, where he made the point that, like, look, um, the American century, the past hundred years, that's been the origin of cinema, the emergence of cinema. And obviously, sound came along quite quickly and all this sort of stuff. And, like, so when the Holocaust happened in Europe and when the Allies liberated the death camps, they knew that they could go and they could get this archive material. They could film the survivors. They could document what had happened. Mm-hmm. And Brody makes the observation that it's fascinating that, like, the emergence of cinema in the United States, which happens at the end of the 1800s, which is, like, within striking distance of slavery... Mm-hmm. There is no attempt in American cinema to document, record, to actually preserve that experience from the people who lived through it. Um, and I, I just I, that was something when I was reading like critical commentary about this movie, I found fascinating. Yeah. 
No, I, I was I was going to say, um, I actually thought about that a lot, um, not just watching 12 Years a Slave, but watching McQueen's filmography in general is the fact that a lot of what he's dealing with in 12 Years a Slave and maybe Widow specifically has a lot to do with cinema itself. And if you think about like the first blockbuster, I mean, A Birth of a Nation, I mean, that's all about this. Um, racialized sexual insecurity at the expense of black men and, you know, preserving the the sexuality of, of the white pure woman, um, justifying the existence and, and the violence of the KKK. This is something that McQueen comments on directly in Widows, where you get this car ride. And I, I saw you tweeting about this, this car ride. The first thing Mulligan says when he gets in the car is he inquires yeah. about his, his girl's sexuality. And that just displays this long just history of racialized insecurity because what reason does he have to be insecure? He has everything that he could possibly want, right? But he's still, he still, he, he needs more. And, and McQueen covers this um, a lot in, in his cinema and I absolutely adore it. I don't know if I answered a question or not. No, and, and and again, to, to put it in context in terms of the memoir, one of the things I found really interesting is, obviously, as the film points out, it is published in like 1852, um, after Northrop uh, goes north. Um, but basically, it circulates when it's initially published, it sells 30,000 copies. Um, it becomes one of the narratives. Um, and again, we'll maybe talk about what distinguishes it from other narratives around slavery. Mm-hmm. But basically, as, as I understand it from from my reading, a lot of the slavery stories are oral traditions. Mm-hmm. And what distinguished Northrop from a lot of other kind of slaves who were telling those stories and having their stories kind of spread was that he was literate. Mm-hmm. Um, he had been born a, you know, a free man. He had had a, a life. He could read, he could write, and he could tell his own story. Now, he did tell that story to a biographer. He didn't write it himself. But it gives the the narrative kind of a literate quality. As you said, um, you know, he is exceptional in every way a human being can be exceptional. Yeah. Um, but like that is kind of what gave it the edge and distinguish it from a lot of similar narratives what made it um a lot more observational the way in which it captured the day-to-day life Mm -hmm. but what's really interesting is that from my reading and again correct me if i am wrong here because i don't know if i am right but it appears to have fallen like out of fashion or it fell out of awareness Mm -hmm. Uh, in the wake of the civil war Mm -hmm. where i'm looking through like the copyright um or looking through the the publication records the second edition of it was only published in 1968 uh, in large part thanks to the work of a and i'll get the name of her here but basically there was a um an academic professor sue eakin who found an old copy in 1931 uh then like Tried to find, found, couldn't find another copy. She went searching through bookstores until 1936, which she bought for 25 cent because the owner thought it wasn't worth anything at all wow. and wrote her master's thesis on it, but then spent the next 33 years trying to get it back into circulation. And obviously it was it was published in 1968, the height of the civil rights movement. Right. But like McQueen has talked about how when he wanted to tell this story, he was looking for a basis for it. He was looking for something he could build it around. And he was like, well, look, The story in my head that I would build is that I would decide that I would want this not to be a story about somebody born into slavery. I want it to be a story of somebody who ends up in slavery because I feel like narratively um, to have a character who has lost that freedom uh, is like a more compelling narrative hook or way to draw in the audience. Mm -hmm. And then to have them like at the end go free. And he's like, there's no way on earth that there's a story like that. There's no way that this happened in real life. There's no way that there's a real basis (laughs) for this. It helps the audience situate themselves in it, I think, as well. Because they're free people because they're in a cinema watching a movie. Yeah. 
can. And like Brad Pitt, they can walk out anytime they want. It gives them, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and that that is somebody who not not that they can obviously they can't like it 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 goes some way to identifying kind of with the character. In yeah, question. yeah, yeah. And like so, so he was like, yeah, this basically his his partner literally found the book and thrust it into his hands. And he was like, this is this is insane. How do more people not know this story? How right. is this not one of the great American narratives, which is, is kind of interesting. Right. And I mean, and again, this is maybe something I want to throw over to you as somebody who knows what they're talking about in this area. But like this movie kind of feels like it arrives culturally at an interesting moment where it, it comes out in 2013. And obviously we talked about how there had been one previous attempt to adapt um, the story um, for American Playhouse on television. Obviously, it was a very sanitized version. Right. Uh, I believe it came from the writer and director of the original Shaft movies. Um, just to put this in context, in terms of like black filmmakers. Wow. But basically, yeah, the only way that he could get it made was he could get it made on a TV budget. And obviously, it was heavily sanitized as well. Gordon Parks is the name. Uh, he did in 1985 for American Playhouse. Wow. But largely outside of big exceptions like you mentioned roots like amistad uh like you know uh beloved slavery from my european cinema watching perspective was not something that american pop culture really talked about mm-hmm. and it it seems like and again mcqueen's talked about this where he, he situates it in the context of the obama election where in 2008 uh, obama is elected and you have this idea of a post-racial america mm-hmm. and it it really does seem like just from an outsider perspective, all of a sudden America is maybe not comfortable talking about this, but is willing to talk about this. It's yeah. willing to engage with this. You mentioned like Django Unchained, which is obviously a massive blockbuster. It's a massive awards contender. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, there is like this as well. And like we should mention in the aftermath of this, um, there's a push. This ends up on the school in the national school curriculum in the United States in february 2014 now don't don't worry this story unfortunately does not have uh, a happy ending i think a lot of listeners will tell where that is right now but at that moment Mm -hmm. in time it really felt like there was progress being made and like people point to like a wave of films about like the historical black experience being made Mm -hmm. you know on the one hand a lot of those movies were stuff like the help you know um but like movies like say 42 for example and Mm -hmm. kind of things like that like how would you situate 12 Years a Slave in terms of that American kind of cultural movement or moment? I look at 12 Years a Slave in a very similar way that I look at Moonlight, where they I can't really perfectly articulate the social conditions in which these films arrived in their own respect or, or in their own right. But it just seemed like the perfect moment. And or, or at least for me as, as a viewer, um, I, I think 12 Years a Slave. As far as like where it sits, that, that's such a difficult question um is much easier with some other films in mcqueen's filmography but given how depressingly alone 12 years a slave still is in terms of what it's documenting what it's dealing with what it's wrestling with and even to a certain degree who made it right as you mentioned it was created by these quote-unquote outsiders uh, to a large degree um, it, it's very hard to place it in, in any sort of black canon. But I will say that since 12 Years a Slave, you, we've gotten films like, you know, Judas and the Black Messiah. And I would argue, I mean, just not to go off on a tangent too far, but we never do that. In this what show. was it? <laughs> right. <laughs> what was it like? I think 
10 years before Judas and the Black Messiah came out, a black writer got a felony on his record for writing about the Black Panthers, right? And like, those doors were just not open. I think his name is Jake, Jake Curtis. That's um, 2010, 2011, to put that in context. Yep. That's yep. like two years before this movie comes out. Yep. The one that we're talking about today. That's insane. And he had like no idea that he had a felony until he went to the airport. And they were like, you can't get on this plane. Like, you have a felony on your record. Anyway, um, wow. so that, that's just to, to illustrate the cultural landscape. A lot of what you're seeing in terms of like radical media is, is going to be found in these sort of underground traditions and things like hip hop and avant-garde poetry. As far as cinema goes, you need so many resources for this. And if we're not talking about Gordon Parks or um, yeah. Melvin Van Peoples, you're just not going to get these, these things on screen. Um, so it's, it's very difficult for me to place it. I know that's not like satisfactory, but I, I know that I see it sort of in the same way that I see Moonlight culturally and that they came in and really like shifted things a lot. Um, but in terms of like where I would place it in the long canon of, of black cinema, that's that's a really tall task. I don't know if I'm, I'm ready for that yet. Um, well, don't worry. We have three questions later on that will get, <laughs> get you kind of prepped through that. But like, yeah, I think yeah, I think you're, you're kind of very much kind of tapping into to something there um, with regards to the. Kind of. This is the first film directed by a black man to win Best Picture, directed by a black person, to win Best Picture, which is insane. It is only the second movie to win an Oscar for screenplay written by a black man, the first being uh, Push, a novel by Sapphire um, as well. Like, this is... Um, and, and you mentioned like how difficult this is to get through the studio system, how hard it is like because cinema is a more expensive medium. It's a more collaborative medium. Mm-hmm. Uh, it relies on things like distribution. It's harder to do something than it is in, you know, rap or in like uh, comic books or in, in, in even in novels, web publishing, all that sort of stuff. Right. It's an industry with a very high barrier to entry if you want to reach the mass market. Mm-hmm. Like it's worth noting that this is this is a Fox Searchlight film. But Fox Searchlight uh, did not agree to finance it. They didn't finance it. They Their distribution deal was largely that they would take on the distribution costs and then would split the proceeds. Wow. Um, so they didn't pay any money up front. That's how anxious they were about it. The budget of this movie is only $22 million. That which is, is insane. insane. Yes, given like the production value on this film. Um, and obviously that the talent involved as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and like... There is maybe something to be said for the fact that it, it also turned out to be relatively profitable. Like, yeah. again, a lot is a lot is written about how obviously the Academy Awards, particularly post uh, 2007, 2008, when you have that year with uh, is it like um, there will be blood and no country for old men, where all of a sudden the best picture nominees and winners stop being movies that make money. Right. And there's this big kind of catalog of all the best picture winners that have made no money whatsoever. I was actually kind of weirdly heartened to go and like read this and discover that like 12 years is like, like to be clear, it's not Slumdog Millionaire. It's also like, it's not Argo. Right. Um, it's not Parasite, but like it still earned considerably more than like the Hurt Locker, the artist, Birdman, Spotlight, Moonlight, and obviously No Bad Land as well. Yeah. Um, like this, this was a movie that made an impact culturally, I think. Yeah. And, and that's heartening um, in, in a way. I really just, I can only go off like what I've read, like certain reviews and I won't name critics um, and certain conversations that I've had that just, they pain me. Cause it's like, what, what movie did you watch? Um, it, it there, there's this thing in, in conversations 
regarding black cinema that I, f- I find very insulting and, and limiting. And that is this idea of, you know, the black trauma film, right? Now, it's, it's a touchy subject because so much of what we thought was black cinema for so long was, was really just, you know, white filmmakers taking opportunity on something that's culturally relevant in the moment and exploiting the suffering of, of black bodies on screen. Um, and obviously like we've, we've sort of, I don't want to say like we've, we've moved out of that, that era, but I would hope we have, I've completely lost my initial point. I have no idea why. Was this the, the, the point about like, black trauma on film with yeah, yeah, yeah. like so, antebellum tv shows like them that yeah, discussion that's been happening yeah. recently so that that stuff has lended a certain a certain level of legitimacy to that very limiting and restricting argument whereas like films like 12 years a slave they like it, it has the same sort of reputation as like a torture porn movie like that that was the a lot of the the dialogue surrounding the film especially upon its release but when you watch it it's like where's the on-screen violence? Like, it doesn't have as, as much as you would think as far as, like, showing you things that get to you. What makes 12 Years a Slave special, in my opinion, and why it gets under people's skin in that way and, and provokes that, that very visceral response is that McQueen, his, his approach to filmmaking is so close and intimate. Yeah. It's involving. It's immediate. Um, and it, it's confusing when you just reduce his filmmaking to singular elements like the long takes are are usually things that people find cold and distancing but McQueen finds a way to cut in at the right moment or he'll do something with audio like the the car ride scene in, in Chicago and Widows where you're very close to the conversation you're in it but you're not allowed access into the actual vehicle and that's interesting it keeps you along and you feel involved um, yeah, I, I feel like I'm ranting at this point or rambling, but yeah, I, I think that the black trauma label has, has in many ways limited what black auteurs and, and black filmmakers are able to do, um, cinematically. And it's, it's an unfair label. And a lot of those films that came out or continue to come out that irresponsibly handle these issues are just lending, you know, validity to that terrible argument. So is, is it that this is about black drama, but it's more than that? Yes. Is, is, yeah. Okay. I mean, that, I guess that's maybe a question I was going to ask later, but in terms of like the movie's legacy, and again, this is one of the things where the argument about whether or not Hollywood learns the wrong lessons right. from past successes, right? where like you look at this and you look at something like, say, um, A Birth of a Nation, Nate Parker's film, which is obviously a cursed film in every way it is possible yeah. to be cursed. Um, but that is a much more graphic uh, film. It is arguably, I would say, much more deserving of the qualifier of torture porn, yep. which is the allegation that Armand White uh, threw at this movie. I think mm-hmm. Armand White was a big proponent of the this is torture porn. Yep. Um, but like, as you mentioned, things like, say, anti- uh, uh, well, I mentioned things like antebellum things like uh them that -hmm. like hollywood's big lesson coming out of this was that was that these movies need to be more visceral these stories Mm -hmm. of trauma need to be more graphic and more bloody um is it is that kind of a fair argument in terms of like the movie's misunderstood legacy because you you open talking about how this is a misunderstood film for sure is that the film's misunderstood legacy in in part um another part of it is a bit abstract and out there but um i'll make the analogy anyway i'll make the the comparison anyway so there's a book called scenes of subjection written by sadia hartman she is 
if I believed in such a thing, she would be like the smartest person in the world. Her brain works in a way that I can't comprehend. But she wrote this book um, called Scenes of Subjection, Slave Making in the 19th Century or something like that. And she wrote it in the 1990s. And her colleagues, she knew that if she wrote something about contemporary society and race relations, that she wouldn't get published. So instead, she had to sort of sublimate what she was doing and sort of make it about the past and in order to get this book through. And she changed the way people looked at historical documentation. And in a way, I feel like McQueen and his collaborators sort of did a similar thing with this. Like, okay, you, want, you think I'm going to make just this movie about this fixed moment in history when in reality we're going to show you a scene of a black man get his identity stripped in a in a what looks like a prison cell and we're going to cut up and show you the world indifferently just ignoring his his pleas for help these buildings that are supposed to represent justice and you can't watch that without thinking about mass incarceration uh systemic imbalance and the reason i made that that comment about you know the film being misunderstood and, and more specifically the Academy sort of not rewarding the film if they took a second to to really engage with it is that the film the film is pessimistic the film doesn't have the breath of fresh air at the end of it it's deeply tragic on every level I mean from the moment that you know Patsy hugs Solomon Northup at the very end of the film like you know and that like there that's just as much Solomon's family as the people he's about to go home to and he has to leave her behind there is no choice and keep in mind in, in Patsy's mind mercy is death yeah. right but she has to stay there and endure that tragedy while he goes home and the first thing he can do is apologize for his appearance and say that he's had a yeah. very hard time and he has to be introduced to his grandchild under those circumstances and as if that wasn't enough, when the film ends, McQueen does not give you that that feeling that um, in the heat of the night gives you that James Baldwin called the 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 closing kiss. Right. To sort of ease the tension. He cuts to black and then tells you what happened to Solomon Northup down the line. Like the, the and circumstances. That nothing happened to any of the people responsible for his exactly, situation. Exactly. 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 So I, I think if if that was taken more into account thinking about what happens in society today, maybe there would have been a bit of hesitation just because of how depressing that is to think about. Well, to be to be fair to McQueen, he's not shy about that. Like again, oh, yeah. he's he's talk, like McQueen is a great interview subject. Yeah, I would wholeheartedly the the show notes will include lots of interviews with McQueen. I'll hardly recommend watching them, particularly when he talks about like hopping on Michael Fassbender's motorbike and going for pints together. Um, but like <laughs> he's he, speaking he, to his motor racing, yeah. Fassbender, he kind Fass, of took yeah. a bit of time out. He did Le Mans. Yes, he didn't do very well, but he's not a professional. He took basically five years off acting, but I, I think the, the doubleheader of doing Dark Phoenix and The Snowman will do that to you. Too. <laughs> That's it. Um, yeah. But it's funny, actually, that people said at the time, um, people do one bad movie and all of a sudden it's over. Whereas Michael Fassbender <laughs> is the Dark Phoenix to Snowman. Yet everybody's he's making all the movies. <laughs> and, and Assassin's he, Creed, and, The Snowman, yeah. X-Men Apocalypse, X-Men and Dark Phoenix. The Counselor. And now he hasn't. You're like, yeah. Well, okay. We're, we don't have time to talk about the cancer. Um, <laughs> and then he kind of didn't do any movies for a while. Yeah, no, he took but five it, years out to yeah. he said motor race and kind of whatever. 
Um, he did Le Mans. I think he, he finished like 51 out of 62. Anyway, sorry. We're, <laughs> we're, we're, and, and that, that's not like a slide on him. He's, he's doing better something. better than I that, would finish at Le Mans, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like, so when do I take a break? <laughs> yeah. Um, no, yeah, yeah. He, he's, he's, he's enjoying it. Yeah. All right. Um, all right, then. So I get the sense we're going to talk about the movie with spoilers in a moment. Um, but three questions before we jump into the spoilers. I'm just mm-hmm. going to start it. So Lee... Do you think 12 Years a Slave is one of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Oh, my God. Did you ask me this last time about Come and See? I, I did. Why am I so surprised by this? Okay. Oh. <laughs> Everyone it's, is. It's, it's, okay. it's traumatic. It's, it's, like it's an actual people repress when I ask that question. You know what? Yeah. I just realized I should have sent We're the format through to you, you again. We're going to ask you what the movie is about <laughs> yeah. for you in a moment. <laughs> this, no, this is great. That, that always terrifies people. They're yeah. like, what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay, so- <laughs> there, I, I don't have enough life in me to watch every single film ever made. But, but you must. Right? Um, <laughs> yes, I, I, I do. I think that everything combined from the aesthetic brilliance of it to like the cultural relevance and the thematic relevance of it and the ambition of it and how radical it is. I mean, you, I'm not sure if you can tell the story of 21st century cinema without mentioning 12 years a slave. Um, okay. And Andrew, what about yourself? Yeah, no, I, 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 I think that's a very compelling argument. I mean, I'm inclined to, to agree. I think when it comes to this question of like, should it be on the top 250 movies of all time? I think it's very important and tells a story that needs to be heard. Um, and in terms of filmmaking, because you could make this film and get that story out there and it'd be a very important, wordy movie and it'd just not be a very good film, yeah. right? Um, this is terrific. Like, the, the, the performances are uniformly excellent. The... the the music, the soundtrack. I was listening to it and I was like, this is really good. (laughs) But, but, and and I was like, but this person's listened to too much Hans Zimmer. (laughs) And and then I I checked it out. I was like, oh, it is Hans Zimmer. Okay. (laughs) Famously, one of the criticisms of the soundtrack to shame, which by the way, I think is a tremendous soundtrack. But one of the big criticisms there was that Harry Escott had listened to a bit too much Hans Zimmer. As well. <laughs> so McQueen obviously has like a mood board for these movies. I feel like yeah. Ludwig Göransson listened to the, the right amount of, of, of Hans Zimmer, well, I guess. Now, I may be wrong here, but isn't Göransson a student or is it, am I thinking of Wallfish? One of them is a student. Wallfish is, anyway. Okay. Wallfish is a collaborator on, um, and like Lauren Balf as yes. well on, on uh, Dunkirk. Zimmer has like an industrial complex of like music. Oh, he's like Picasso. He just signs it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, <laughs> like Bob Kane or Walt Disney. Yeah. He just stamps his name on it in the process. Yeah. Um, but yeah, um, and, and for myself, I think, yeah, I think like this is this is a conversation I've been very nervous about having in part because Lee is, is like really smart and I'm very intimidated by that. Don't be. But also yeah. just because this is a legitimately like important film, like it's it's a film that I think matters, uh, you know, first of all, it's a well-made film. So mm-hmm. it passes the initial 250 bar of is it better than The Help? The answer is yes. <laughs> Therefore, it belongs on the list. Yeah. Um, second of all, it, it is an important film, I think, like just in terms of cinematic history. Uh, and, you know, this is a film that exists. We mentioned in the context of like American slavery on film where this is 
a film that exists in conversation with and in rejection of Gone with the Wind Mm -hmm. and A Birth of a Nation, which are two of the landmark moments in American cinema. And therefore, it kind of merits inclusion on any list of movies just based purely uh, on, on that, I would argue. And then, you know... Again, like discussions where David Denby is describing it as like easily the greatest feature film made about American slavery. Christopher Orr in The Atlantic describing it as the most painful clear-eyed feature ever made about American slavery. Um, Like Peter DeBrugge in Variety making the point that, you know, it's a shame such an injustice was allowed to exist for so long and an even bigger disgrace that it took a British director to bring it to the fore. Like I think the film is important in the way that films are. But more than that, and then there's the third level of this where it's like it's already on the list and it's kind of, at this stage, it's just showboating. It's, it, I'll, I'll just say for, sorry to interrupt, it's wild that you can make kind of like Ben-Hur and Spartacus and all of these kinds of movies, you know, about slavery. About Roman slavery. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And I never kind of like, um, you know, this is... You know, this is important and people will want to go see this and we, we won't like alienate white audiences. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The South in particular is a, yeah. a huge factor. And those were really huge hit movies. Yeah. Um, but that, 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 that there wasn't kind of like a, a, Nobody a reckoning about American slavery. Or, 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 white Americans in the mainstream uh, press don't make the connection between like Spartacus being a movie about how terrible it is to own another human being right. and how any society that treats human beings in that way is decadent and on the verge of collapse released in like 1960, I think. <laughs> um, and like white critics are mostly like, yeah, it's a pretty good sword and sandals movie, I think. Right. Yeah. Yep. Um, like, I mean, I don't know if there was intent behind it. I'm not an expert in that, that, pretend. That, but. Yeah. That's what I'm wondering. Kind of like, was there any kind of, um, like cognizance when making those like or or, or or like even subconsciously i i suppose it's it's it's, it's difficult to know and we're not talking about those movies no yeah. we're not we will talk about ben-hur at some point but yeah I, like i part of me is like i think maybe and this is just darren talking nonsense but it's like i think that there was probably something in the air in the late 50s early 60s in american pop culture where people were having those thoughts maybe not even consciously or explicitly but they're like that stuff was bubbling through into the culture in these ways and i don't know if there was like i don't know if anybody at mgm sat down and said no this is a movie about the r- legacy of slavery in america versus right. people just being like no this like that stock comparison to Rome that was very pop it's still popular today like mm-hmm. succession literally has one of the dysfunctional children called Rome in this <laughs> show about a declining empire within a declining empire but oh. like you know in the 1960s there was this fad of like comparing America to Rome and like the obvious connection there is to make Rome having slaves and that being a moral sin that in many of these movies dooms Rome. Hmm. And then, as Andrew said, the kind of like unspoken connection there <laughs> of like, if America is Rome, what, you know, what's the equal to? What's the other side of this equation? And we're not going to talk about it. Um, right. So, yeah, I, 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 my answer is I don't know. My answer is I've thought about this and I am in no position to answer. And then you have droids in Star Wars. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> droid. And George Lucas and the whole complicated thing that happens with George Lucas where droids are treated like slaves, but also Jar Jar Binks exists. Yeah. Um, and yeah. <laughs> we're, and like Star Wars is white slavery in, in interviews, George Lucas states. Like there's, we do, we do, we're not talking about George Lucas in this episode. No, 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 no. <laughs> 
um, but like charting American pop culture. And then, yeah, the third, the third, Darren says, finally, the third thing that I think makes this a movie that is pretty undeniable on this list in a way that very few movies on this list are undeniable is that snapshot of a moment where it does feel like this is like one of the defining moments of like the Obama presidency or it embodies or it speaks to mm-hmm. one of those moments. Cause it's, it's very famously, this is released in 2013. It wins best picture in 2014. And like a couple of months later, you have say, to pick an example, Tennessee Coates in the pages of the Atlantic, one of the great American magazines right. saying what was like previously unutterable in American, like popular discussion, the, mm-hmm. the case for reparations. Right. You have this sense that like, America is on the verge of reckoning with this thing within itself. Um, and I mean, spoiler alert, it doesn't. Um, <laughs> right. And it gets worse. And yeah. like the the spoiler, the, the really sad ending to that story where this this is placed on the national curriculum in 2014 is that mm-hmm. it ends up being at the forefront of the critical race moral panic of the early 2020s. Mm-hmm. It's already, I know for a fact, banned uh, in various prisons around mm-hmm. the US um, in the early 20s as well. Yeah. And obviously, like the, a lot of the coverage around Solomon, the Solomon Northup Day uh, this year uh, was around the moral panic around critical race theory and how that affects this particular text. Mm-hmm. So while I, you know, I'm not giving this movie, I'm not arguing that the moment got all the way there, but I think that like as a snapshot of a moment in American consciousness. And again, to be clear, McQueen, who's very clear eyed about this, when he's asked about like how this movie got made, he's very honest. And he says, I think Obama's election had a lot to do with it. Mm-hmm. And I think the question we're not asking is like, what happens after Obama leaves office? Like right. it's it's not just that this movie got made, it's like, could this movie get made? another four years down the line could this get made in 2017 yeah i mean i mean i i I think um like obama to a certain extent represents that kind of hopefulness and that they they you know the sweeping arc of history i believe bending towards justice yeah yeah um and 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 that like i think you can still believe that in 2023 you just have to kind of think that it's going to um that not everything is going to get worse the way it is the way it is <laughs> the That's case for pessimism <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of like oh this is just kind of um you know the dying the, breaths or the last yeah, gap yeah, this is one step back okay two steps back right. <laughs> okay lots, three steps back yeah, yeah. We'll, it's, it's yeah. interesting you you mentioned the obama administration because i think this is something that mcqueen wrestles with directly in widows Right. Like he he displays the death of Marcus in front of this wall of Obama change change posters. And when you consider like who his parents were, how his father was introduced at the beginning of the film, where his love is intercut not only with his violence, but his theft showing you like this is who this person is. He's one half of this person in this car. But one little stain of this flesh puts this person in danger and no amount of change posters or change sentiment is going to protect this child from this bullet. And more than that, this this man, this white man, is able to buy into this fantasy of a post-racial future, but the moment that it becomes uncomfortable for him to do so, he will, like, not only 
distance himself from that family unit, mm-hmm. he will turn on it in a very direct and aggressive way. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, maybe in some ways feels a little pointed in its commentary For sure. um, about like where things went um, like after this this period. Yeah. But yeah, so that is that is my, my three prong argument. I think A, it's a good movie. I think it's better than some of the most of the movies on the list. Uh, B, I think it's like an important moment in American cinema, which would be enough to clear it on the list by default. And C, I think it's just like, a moment it, it captures a moment in broader culture that I think is worth noting on the list. I think it's worth acknowledging. And I think that if you can do all three, it's a hat trick. It's inarguable. Darren makes possibly the strongest case he's ever made for a movie being on this list. Um, <laughs> Just for the record, I would like to change my answer to what Darren said. <laughs> Cause all, all I said was, yeah, I think it should be on there. <laughs> and then, well, don't worry. I, I have a, I have a little blackboard behind me with the formula there. Um, it's it's worth precisely 3.5 um the batmans um but (laughs) but lee would this be on your own personal uh 250 favorite movies like just you're like having to separate it from its importance historically you know its value on a list as like an object but like your personal favorite movies oh 100 percent. i mean it's it's so full of things that just make that just stop me as an audience member. Like as I'm watching it, I, I find something new um, every single time I watch it. And I didn't think that was possible. You know, you watch a movie enough times, you kind of find yourself doing that thing where you're kind of holding it in contempt. Like I know everything this film has to offer. And then you just have to stop for a second when you see something and you're like, whoa, like I, I had not considered that. Let me search for an example here. So um, Mistress Shaw, um, the black woman on the plantation that Patsy gets whipped for going to. That's the afterward art character, isn't it? Yes, yeah. yes. She is one of the most fascinating characters to me now as an adult. When I first saw it, I despised her. Like, mm. you're, you're the problem. Like, people like you who just accept this condition. But this last rewatch, it put me in the mind of the book um, Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, um, written by Harriet Jacobs. Um, she wrote it she she named the the character the main character Linda Brent and obviously it represented her but one of the things about that book is that she often has to occupy two places at the same time often under immense duress in both and one of the ways that i feel like mistress shaw sort of embodies this is that on one hand she is content or she she has to present as someone who's content with being an object of her master's desire. She has to lean into the archetype. But then, and if you blink, you'll miss it. She talks. When, when, when Solomon finally sits down, she's, she says something to the effect of desiring the apocalyptic end to the plantation class. And I had missed that for some reason. Every single time I'd seen it That's up to The that. curse of the pharaohs will be nothing compared to we're, what is coming. Yeah, yes. we're, we're, the curse of the pharaoh were a poor example for what waits for the plantation class. Yes, yeah. yes. And that's just one of those moments of brilliance where you just you can't write a character off in a film with this much complexity, visually, dialogically, like everything is firing on all cylinders at all times. You can't disregard a single frame of the film. And that's just one example of, of one of those things that I love about it. So for sure, it's, it's in my favorites of all time. Do you remember the first time you saw it, actually, just out of curiosity? Yeah, saw it in a theater, um, 2013, in Alabama, in a theater full of white people. It was a very interesting experience. <laughs> 
Um, there's this, a story like Wesley Morris tells about seeing it in the cinema and just sitting in the cinema while the lights came up and just being unable to process yeah. it. Yeah, it was it was rough. It was a very rough experience. That and Selma were rough because like you as I was the only um, black audience member in both of those films. And like when you sit through moments of extreme violence or the implication of extreme violence, you have to wonder, like, what is this doing for everyone else in the audience? Like, because I, I remember distinct, like, I, there was a guy in my screening of 12 Years a Slave who laughed specifically at the Paul Dano scene where he makes them uh, clap the rhythm to the song. As he's so it's like, with the slurs, yeah. Yeah, it's like, if, if that's the level that you're operating on, why are you in this theater? Like, what, what is this movie doing for you? If, if that's humorous to you, what is the rest of the experience for you? I know that's, that's kind of irrelevant, but yeah. that was my experience with it the first time. Yeah, I feel like in that situation, Steve McQueen isn't like, uh, oh, whatever the movie means for you. He's uh, <laughs> like, no, you do not understand. Uh, yeah. A film is inherently subjective. Every <laughs> yeah. opinion is valid except yours. Get out of the cinema. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> um, yeah. Oh, gosh. No, I like I I I I agree with everything you say. I re- I really admire the 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 um the, the I guess ambivalence throughout this movie and the the it's very clever. It's very writerly. Like you mentioned, the curse of the pharaoh, and then we have the 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 cotton worm, yeah, kind of the com- biblical plague. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Come, co- um, uh, comes later. And you the, the 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 way you kind of uh, McQueen or perhaps Northrop because the, 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 I haven't read the novel but the, but you mentioned that it 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 kind of this movie sort of is the 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 novel to an extent um, the way you set up certain characters to offer different perspectives and that, and and that then you also have. Uh, characters who are complex in themselves yeah. um multifaceted and contradictory yeah mm-hmm. well i mean like, that's that's the mcqueen special again not to jump too heavily into maybe discussions of what the movie's about and stuff but like mcqueen as a filmmaker has this eye that is like i'm surprised he's not a documentarian i'm surprised yes. he came from an arch background yes. because his films are well first of all very well observed cinematically like his use of long takes that you mentioned mm-hmm. um the fact that like so many of them have like these moments of stillness um like the cicadia the recording of the, of the cicadia when he went to louisiana the first thing he noticed was he wanted the sound of louisiana on the film and there are several points where like the dialogue and the music drop out and you just hear the sounds mm-hmm. uh, around where it has this kind of like naturalistic quality to it while also being kind of magical in terms of its editing and as you said being inside northrop's head but like he he does have this observational kind of like literary quality to him where like the shot I think of is is rewatching Hunger and there's this entire sequence where one of the guards stands outside in the snow. The first 30 minutes of Hunger have like zero dialogue in them, mm-hmm. um, barring maybe some exposition. And like there's just a scene of one of the guards with his bloody knuckles standing outside in the snow as it's falling, smoking a cigarette. Mm-hmm. And just like the shot of him standing there and the shot of him, and I'm, I'm literally imitating it as I say it, but like yeah. turning his hand, seeing the bruises with the snow falling on it. It's this wonderful observational kind of quality. He yes. He's talked about like with with hunger and with shame, he wanted to observe these things without being like didactic without being overly didactic, without being, you know, instructive. He wanted to 
say in the character in the movie Shame, like observe Brandon without judging him, for example. Now, I think I think you're I think it's very clear that he is judging like a lot in this movie. Yeah. But I think that like there is that that observational quality shines through those characters you mentioned where they are multifaceted. Yeah. And they are complex. But Andrew, would this be on your own personal favorite movies, your own 250 favorite movies? Um, It's a difficult uh, question. I, 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 I was disappointed I, th- I, I, I thought the movie was excellent. See, it's the difficulty with this question. It's like, so you don't like the movie, <laughs> you, you know? Um, I, 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 I loved this movie, but I, 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 I feel like I think maybe p- p- part part of the thing is that you know that it's well. For, for sorry, not that one knows it. It's. I don't know what it was, but it, it maybe it was just knowing that it was um, a movie about somebody who spends twelve years as a slave, and that it would be kind of harrowing. And while there while there is a certain amount of kind of tonal balance, it didn't. I suppose I I I was it, it don't like don't get me wrong it it is. Um, devastating obviously but for some reason it did it did like i do want to see this movie again but it it didn't devastate me the way i want this kind of story to do and i don't think like it's just i don't think there was anything wrong with the movie it just didn't have that effect on me last night when i when i when i when 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 i watched it where i was like blown away I, i i was kind of able to um watch the movie uh and i i i I thought it 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 was masterful um but i i i I didn't have the 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 personal connection i feel like i have to be honest it would be the easiest thing to say absolutely of course it would be on my 250 can I ask, like, again, this is, sorry, this is where I, I, I'm a terrible host. I, I meant to ask this earlier and just got kind of, like, drawn into the discussion. But had I that, seen it? That's no, exactly I had. Ask, no, no. And, and, mm. and it, it's, it's maybe good to have the perspective of having seen something more than once and have, having seen something kind of, like, many years ago and then watching it again. And for myself, again, kind of controversially, I worry I'm going to agree with Andrew. Like, I think this is a masterful film. I think this is an amazing yeah. film. I think it deserves to be, like, on the list of the greatest films of all time. It certainly belongs and certainly has a place. I think, like, of McQueen's, and to be clear, love this film a lot. I think it's a five-star film. Um, yeah. Uh, 250 films is not a lot for somebody who watches a lot of movies. Right. And I think that, like, I rewatched all of McQueen's uh, feature lengths. I did not watch Small Axe again for this, but I watched his feature length movies for this. And I think A, McQueen is like one of the best directors working today. Yeah. Um, and I think that for me, the film that would be most likely to make my own personal 250 because I am a grubby little gremlin with terrible taste is probably Widows, which is like him doing this wonderful genre exercise yeah. in the style of movies we don't get anymore. These old like 90s, like Science of the Lambs, Panic Room, Insomnia, mm-hmm. like Inside Ru- Inside Man, you know, from, from Spike Lee. Like just watching him make this movie that's really visceral, exciting, well-constructed, but also, as you said, has these levels and this depth and this complexity. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that with McQueen... Like, 
I don't agree with the accusation that this is torture porn, to be clear. I actually think this is easier to watch in some in some ways than both hunger and shame. And I think McQueen, I agree. McQueen is very like McQueen is honest. He said that was the point. Like mm-hmm. he wanted to make this a movie that you could bring kids to see, mm-hmm. that like children could see, that this could be shown in schools. Yes, it would be tough to watch, but he didn't want it to be like NC-17 rated. Right. He didn't want no. it to be like... It's not the... the like I haven't seen The Passion of the Christ. Yeah, it's, it's not like yeah, that. No. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He, he, and he didn't want to turn it into that. He wanted to, while not ignoring the brutality and the horror of the institution of slavery, he also didn't want to make it like inherently alienating. He wanted like people to see this movie and to talk about this movie and for this movie to be part of a conversation in a way that like shame couldn't be because right. um, shame is very graphic. Yeah. Um, and like, I think that, uh, you know, I, so while acknowledging that I will say watching McQueen's first three movies, which are hunger, shame and 12 years a slave. I was revisiting them for the first time since their release. And I think they're all phenomenal movies not to jump ahead into the recommendations, I would recommend you watch all of them. Yeah. Um, but I also, while watching them, was like, I know why I didn't rewatch them, why I haven't like <laughs> sat down on the couch on a Saturday night and been like, you know what? I need to kick back and just put on shame. Like, yeah. shame is probably... Like, shame also is maybe on my 250 movies, because I think Ooh. it's the one that like profoundly affected me. Yeah. I don't think I've ever come out of a cinema feeling quite as, like touched and not in a good way but like just yeah. touched deeply and emotionally by a film right. as i did coming out of shame yeah um so i think like shame may be on my 250 as well even if it's a movie i never watch it's in like a little vault down the bottom of my movies where it's there yeah. if i ever need it i probably won't yeah um but i, I think that 12 years a slave maybe just narrowly misses out on that yeah, um it... which is no insult to it sorry yeah i'm, I'm sorry I, I didn't mean to interrupt but oh, um go ahead it's funny you mentioned that about shame because I have to make a confession. That's the only thing I didn't rewatch for this. I can't. I, I, just, I can't do it. I don't know like what it is about me because I watch so many depressing and disgusting movies, but shame just does something to me. I don't. I don't know what it is. I've only seen it once. Come. I'm good on it. Come and see is the other episode. <laughs> You're wrong as well. Like, just to put this in perspective. Yeah, I love Come and See. Yeah. I, I can watch films like that all day, every day. But my God, shame, man. I don't know. I can't do yeah. it. I mean, like, the, the thing I think about, with, this is not a shame podcast, but the thing that I think about <laughs> with shame is, like, the final line from Ebert's review, where he says, this is a great act of filmmaking and acting. I don't believe I would be able to see it twice. <laughs> yeah. And I completely, completely agree with that. Yep. Um, so I don't think 12 Years a Slave would be quite uh, on my list. But um, what about yourself then? So would you recommend listeners, if they have not seen 12 Years a Slave, oh, absolutely. that they pause the podcast and watch it right now? Yeah, watch it right now. Like it's compulsory viewing. Like you have to listen to me. Um, I have the authority. I don't know who granted it. <laughs> To me, but I the have the authority. Yeah, I, I, got it, you. I got it from the podcast. Um, go watch it. Seriously, it's incredible. And while you're at it, um, especially if you're in America right now, I don't want to get on a soapbox, but these resources, these these abilities to reach back into the past and understand what got us here are going to be eroded in the next few years. So watch this, read the book, read Scenes of Subjection all of that stuff to get a clear picture or a clearer picture of, of what this film is trying to depict. Absolutely watch it. 
Right. And Andrew, having like literally just come fresh from watching it, would you recommend that listeners watch 12 Years a Slave? Absolutely. Yeah. This, uh, like, I, I guess don't watch a lot of movies that I haven't been mandated to watch for that a podcast. you don't get a text message from Darren <laughs> yeah. saying, by the way, yeah. we're watching this. But, but I, I think, I think especially between like maybe 2010 and, I guess when we started this, um, I, oh, I, I, lacuna. I watched very few movies. Yeah. Um, and I guess this was in it. Why um, did we agree to doing a movie podcast? It's about friendship, Darren. That is. It's that about is, me wanting to spend time with you. And, and you, oh. you kind of like, you pitching me like different <laughs> things. It could have been about comic books. And, and every time you come into my house, you're like, thank God it isn't about comic books. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like like I had seen a movie, uh, but I but I <laughs> I, I hadn't really comic read a comic book. I I have read comic books, but uh, not to the same extent. But um, I and and I would also <coughs> recommend that people watch this. Um, it it kind of um it passed me by. I was aware of it, um, had heard about it. Um, I think part of what you hear about this in relation to is how good. In terms of a record, uh, Brad Pitt has for 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 producing movies, and well, um, Plan B, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry, Plan B. Um, but the the and and kind of like giving credit for like choosing movies like this that highlight um, these these subjects and um, filmmakers who are often overlooked as well like i think he has a good track record working with female filmmakers as well yeah yeah and 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 people of color like we 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 we've mentioned selma and moonlight um yeah are those plan b as well mm-hmm. yeah i think so okay okay wow okay cool good 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 for brad pitt's production company right um, um and and for myself yes i would wholeheartedly uh recommend watching it like again i was kind of stealing myself watching this. Um, I just, again, just come out of shame, which is a movie where like you should have a shower installed in your seat when you're watching it. Absolutely. So you can just, when it's over, just be clean. <laughs> um, I, I, and I say that, say, I think it's a masterful piece of cinema, which genuinely moves me in my soul um, right. and breaks my heart every time I watch it of the two times I've watched it and declared it an American masterpiece. Right. Um, but I, I do watching 12 years a slave. I was like surprised by, there's a line from Chiwetel Legia 4 uh, that I think about a lot when I watch the movie, and it's like, it's beautiful. It's not pretty, but it's beautiful. And it is a superbly made piece of cinema. Um, yes. It is, like, just on a technical level, it is one of the most impressive films of the 21st century, I would argue. And I think, yeah, I think, like, you know, when you say it's important, it has a tendency to feel like homework. It's a yeah. tendency to feel like you have to do it sure. in the greens. Yeah, that's it, exactly. Um, it should I, be very clear that it's not. No. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This this is this is a beautiful piece of filmmaking that also happens to be a hugely important uh, piece of American culture. Um, so yeah, I would wholeheartedly recommend it. With that in mind, we will segue neatly into the spoiler zone. Spoiler zone. Solely. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Having literally just come from that conversation talking about like the three questions, what is Twelve Years a Slave about for you? Oh boy, um, I mean, I I think it's 
there's a really obvious answer and there's a harder to accept answer. I think the obvious answer is it's about the institution of slavery, right? I think the harder to accept answer is that it's about race relations today, because a lot of the rudiments and a, a lot of the assumptive logic that animated that world are still in place right now. And I think you can see that in just the fact that we still call ourselves black. That's a term that grew out of slave castles and finding a way to distinguish yourself from what you are not. You're going to put these people in bondage, not only so you can extract labor from them, but so that you can create an underclass through contradistinction, understanding who you are. And I think that like, in a way, that's what 12 Years a Slave is about. It's, it's a resistance to, maybe not resistance, it highlights how fragile the idea of the individual actually is, especially if you're black. Because Solomon Northup, again, was incredibly distinguished, and it took almost nothing for him to just be another cog in the machine. Um, yeah, so I, I, that's what I think it's about. I think it's about contemporary race relations and um, a lot of the difficulties that, that come with it, honestly. I mean, McQueen has said that. Like, again, that's just around the time you had discussions like um, stop and stop and search or stop and frisk and that sort of stuff as well. Mm -hmm. You'd had a couple of the deaths, like the George Zimmerman cases around the same time as well, 2014-ish. Mm -hmm. um, you also, again, like, and McQueen has said, like, when he made Hunger, Hunger, which is about Bobby Sands uh, in the maze, you know, in the 1970s, is for him about, like, Abu Ghraib and about, like, Guantanamo Bay, which were the issues that were happening at the same time as well. So he draws that kind of clear line between then and now. And I think like you made an observation earlier on that like if you're writing that sort of stuff, it's easier to deal with it through the lens of history right. where you have the confines of at least this thing maybe doesn't exist anymore. And you can have that kind of comfort and space between it um, that you wouldn't get away with kind of today. Agreed. And I mean, like it, it is worth noting. And again, this is just something I kind of pulled up while I was reading. Like the the fact that this one best picture was like not to be taken for granted. Now it right. did win the golden globe. It did win the BAFTA, but like it won best picture without winning best director, which is, you know, even in the 10 field, you know, 10 film field is still a relatively rare occurrence. Right. Um, there's like, there's all the reports. There's a wonderful kind of like discussion of it in the Los Angeles times where they talk about how like gravity, which is the movie that won the most Oscars that year. Quran mm -hmm. was the one who took home the best director Oscar instead of McQueen. Mm -hmm. Like that, academy screening was like packed the guild they were turning people away at the door whereas like the academy screening of 12 years a slave was like half empty by comparison and like you have like the, the los angeles times reporter like asking various people why they didn't go and getting you know i'm sorry i know it seems like an important film but it sounds too depressing or i know i should go see it but i don't think i can sit through it and like even things like again we we mentioned like the obama era and this existing in that context the fact that like Obama screened, you know, Lee Daniels, the butler, and mm -hmm. he talked to the press about how he teared up watching it, for example. Mm -hmm. um, he also hosted a screening of like Mandela Long Walked Freedom, an another film from around the same time as well, like press photos, uh, like photos of him watching it, all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. The White House requested a print of this movie. But there's no record of them even screening it. He made no comment on the record. This was just something that he nobody talked about, right. which is kind of kind of interesting that there's this thing that hangs over this movie where it, it does get across the line but it also feels in some cases like it's there's a little bit of discomfort of like a how do we talk about this uh with this movie which i find interesting um yeah. as well i agree I, I think that's just the nature of the subject matter it, it presents it presents so many 
uncomfortable paradoxes and, and challenges to what we think to be reason and logic and cause and effect, like these really basic aspects of our reality and our, our social condition. Um, and, and people don't really want to question these things because they seem self-evidently true. And to have a real conversation about a film like this, you have to really start questioning so many foundational things. Um, in other words, people love liberalism. They, they love talking about, like, let's solve racism. But they don't want to get in the weeds and really deal with it. And I'm speaking from experience on that one. Yeah. Well, again, again like that, that discussion about reparations, for example, which is a discussion about directly connecting the past to the present in America mm -hmm. and looking at the comp how hard it would actually be to untangle all of that. And again, I'm very conscious I'm a white guy in Europe. I should probably not be saying or talking about this. I have no position or authority or awareness, but that's not going to stop me yeah, um, exactly. from having an opinion. I, I, I can see that. <laughs> exactly. Um, but hold but on, I let me talk now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let me illuminate things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but no, I, I, and I do think like in terms of like McQueen's presentation of slavery, like again, one of the big discussions about it was we talked about like McQueen as a kind of almost documentarian filmmaker. Mm -hmm. I think for me, this is an interesting movie about slavery because it is very much about the machinery of slavery. Like yes. I was watching this movie, rewatching it for the first time, I think since I, since it won best picture. And I was amazed that like, I remember obviously particular shots and we'll maybe talk about some of those particular shots in a moment, yeah. but one of them, I remember a particular cut in the movie and it's so strange because it's like, it's not a cut that I, you know, that people talk about being technically difficult or they talk like there aren't interviews about how he got the shot. It's the shot where they're on the boat being heading south. And it's the shot from inside the kind of the room where all the slaves are being kept to mm -hmm. the whirling motor of yes. the back of the boat. And the it's water just this... rippling the, the soundtrack as well accompanying. Yeah. It. yeah. yeah. And it, it's just this wonderful shot that immediately communicates to you how much of this is a machine, mm -hmm. how much of this is an entire system and structure. I mean, again, I think David Denby pointed out the sequence where the slaves are taken through Washington mm -hmm. um, in the back of the kind of in the back of the cart with the sheet over them. Mm -hmm. The way in which McQueen allows that scene to play long or that shot to play long means that it looks almost like you're watching somebody open a tin of sardines. It's like right. peeling back the gray kind of cover and inside there are all these bodies kind of arranged. And it, it captures the sense of this being inhumane, this being a system where there's there's no individual villain. Now, obviously, right. there are lots of very bad people in this movie. <laughs> and as, right. as Andrew said, the film's not sitting there, go, wants you to think about the complexity of Paul Dano's uh, Tabish character. <laughs> right. But I, I, I really like, like, for example, the, the presentation of the character of Ford, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, mm -hmm. who, you know, in any other narrative would be seen as this almost sympathetic figure, this guy yes. who feels somewhat conflicted about the place of the system in which he's found himself. Mm -hmm. And I find the film's presentation of him really interesting because he is as nice as it is possible for somebody to be in that situation, in that right. he does not physically like beat Northrop and right. he at certain points not always but at certain points interjects to minimize the brutality of somebody like Tabit for example there, but he yeah. also like doesn't intervene when his wife insists on having a woman who is crying about the loss of her children right. taken away from the plantation right. he doesn't intervene like to stop the lynching of kind of Northrop and like when Northrop says to him look we both know I'm not a slave. We both right. know that I'm a free man. Right. His response is, I can't hear that. Yep. It's like, it's it's not even like, that's nonsense. You're just lying or I know you're lying or, or whatever. 
It's I cannot hear that because I have a mortgage on you. Right. I have taken up this debt, this system that I bought into, and now I have to worry about the financial considerations of that. Yeah. Like, and, and by the way, it's worth noting that the descendants of the real life Ford protested that the portrayal of him in the movie was far too unfair. Um, they were what like, they that's why. <laughs> <laughs> what did they want him to like do a dance number or something like what that's um, that's very strange that's very strange it's interesting the spectrum kind of of um of the different kind of white characters in it because they, they, they you 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 have all of this kind of you you have people like tibbets and epps kind of on one hand or maybe you could put like Tibbets at the most extreme, and it did go from there to ebbs. I mean, you 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 don't really get to see the the kind of savagery that. Oh no, sorry, sorry. It, it's but it, the I it makes more sense when you then start to talk about like of and and obviously with 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 within that uh, within that group as well you would put freeman like the uh, paul giamatti's character oh but then you get people like ford um armsby yes armsby's and, a very interesting one yes. yeah. yeah and then finally bass who i who i guess is the 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 not only somebody who um is appalled by it which I, which, yeah, which, which, which I think like Ford on some level disagrees with it, but will not oppose it. Um, and I feel like Armsby disagrees with it and is on, 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 on some level willing, but not able to oppose it. Or if, if, or if that doesn't give him too much credit. And then there is Bass, who, uh, who will do something about it, kind of a great uh, cost, or sorry, a great um, danger to himself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, like one of the big observations was that like this doesn't have that many heroic white characters. There was like no. some criticism of Brad Pitt casting himself as Samuel Bass. <laughs> The I heroic carpenter from Canada, yeah. um, <laughs> the man who produced the film, who shows up with a beard and is like, by the yeah. way, just in case you don't get it, slavery is wrong. Right. Here, Michael Fassbender, let me explain to you why slavery is wrong in case the audience <laughs> yeah. hasn't got that point already. Um, and like, well, I, I feel do... like that, that was true to the historical yes. character. Just the, the, the idea, by the way, I think it's good casting. <laughs> <laughs> um, in, 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 in that you feel in, like Saul Bass deserves to be played by like one of the quote, sexiest people, sexiest man. Alive no, it's like, whatever. Paul, you read great. Um, we do imagine. want you in the movie. Boat balls. <laughs> um, uh, but well, we think we might make you one of the villains. It's like, dad damn it. Always the villain, Paul. Always the villain. <laughs> yes, it would be a different movie if the character of Bass was played by Paul Giamatti. <laughs> yeah. uh, but like, I, I do like, by the way, like, 
in in defense, like McQueen has said, look, he he's the reason the film got made. He's also like him casting himself as a reason why the film was able to get like distribution and stuff sure. like that as well. Mm-hmm. And and again, like I when Igio Four like was was when it was mentioned to him that he cast himself in the savior role or he chose the savior role. I think Igio Four laughed at the idea of chose. It was more like there was just one part left, right. one part that McQueen hadn't cast yet, and yeah. it's like we need to get Brad Pitt in here, and it happens <laughs> to be. In. I mean, there there is the famous story about European distribution where the poster for this in Italy had like Michael Fassbender and Brad Pitt. That is what? <laughs> <laughs> that was Michael Fassbender, huge in Europe. Um, I want to see the post. I want. I, I couldn't find the poster for it because I just want to see the poster that is the two of them arguing over building a house. And like what movie you think you're going to see <laughs> if it's amazing. Brad Pitt and, and Michael Fassbender arguing over how to build a gazebo. That is amazing. Um, that is so good. Oh, my but God. Like, and like not to. And again, this is the thing where I worry about like focusing this on like whiteness and focusing the debate of 12 years of slave on whiteness. One of the things I do find. Interesting about this movie is that, as Andrew said, the idea that like the curse of the Pharaohs, the idea that this is. Within the movie, there's this recurring motif of building a house. Um, mm-hmm. Like, in several of the key shots, there is an unbuilt, half-constructed house in the background. The shot of Northrop obviously being, like, lynched, hanging um, from the, kind of, the tree. Mm-hmm. That is as a result of him trying to build a house and, like, Tibbets just, like, deciding to lynch him or lash out at him. Right. And in the background of those long takes, the half-constructed house is always there. Mm-hmm. Uh, he fu- he manages to escape when he connects with Bass while Bass is building a gazebo, but another, again, half-constructed house. Right. Um, and, like, it throughout the film, there's this discussion or this implication that, like, and again, this is something that I think is, like, McQueen brings up repeatedly where McQueen I think is a very religious or at least a very spiritual filmmaker where a lot of his films are about this idea of the gulf between the spirit and the the flesh Mm -hmm. and the idea that sometimes to nourish the spirit you have to starve the flesh in hunger like mm-hmm. this idea where he is like again in in hunger bobby sands is very much a christ-like figure he right. sacrifices and he dies for the sins um he is presented almost as this kind of martyr like the the one long take scene the one dialogue driven scene in all of hunger is like a long take with with him and liam cunningham where liam cunningham is a priest mm-hmm. and he's arguing and they're having this discussion about like faith belief martyrdom yeah. um and again this idea of transcendence where at the end of hunger um, like McQueen uses this imagery of him going back to childhood and the allegory of the deer, yeah. but it, it becomes transcendental and spiritual. Mm-hmm. In shame, shame is the opposite. Shame is about the idea of indulging your flesh, indulging the base carnal desires and starving the soul. And the idea that like Brandon does all this stuff, he searches all this relief and release and he pursues it because he's incapable of finding something within himself. He's incapable of connecting with something fundamental inside himself. He can't move past whatever it was in his past. He can't emotionally mature or deal with his reality. He is empty and vacuous. And again, this is not a shame podcast, but I was thinking very much about like (laughs) uh, movies like there, there's a pitch, but things like say, for example, like the the girlfriend experience or nymphomaniac where you had a lot of movies around that time that Mm -hmm. were about like the emptiness of sex and the idea that like we live in an empty vacuous consumerist culture of shiny surfaces but hollow emptiness inside and here like i think a lot about like that idea of mcqueen as a sort of religious filmmaker where you know and there were discussions about how like at certain points 
shame can be read as a metaphor for stations of the cross is one big argument about it or yeah there, there's a there's a there's a pitch but also hunger as we mentioned is a christ metaphor right you have in here you have like religion is obviously a big part of it uh mm-hmm. both ford and epps preach using scripture for example yeah um, and you, you you have that sense of um it's that line from the merchant of venice um the the devil uh quote scripture to uh, suit his purpose cite scripture for his purpose and yeah. then they, they, which which itself goes back to scripture and it's it's the uh, sorry i have it written down it's 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 matthew chapter four chapter four verse six where um the devil is tempting jesus and he says for it is written he shall give his angels charge concerning thee and in their hands they shall bear thee up so when when he's like, if you jump off the temple, like you you'll you'll uh, the the angels will hold you and they won't let you dash against the stones. Yeah. Um. So you 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 have these evil characters kind of um, citing scripture for their own evil purposes. And and again, this this emphasis on like the the suffering of flesh. Like we talked about how the accusation that this is torture porn. It is not torture porn, but there's a huge emphasis on the idea of like bodily suffering and spiritual perseverance. Mm-hmm. Again, the idea, you know, again, like it's a cliche to describe something as the triumph of the human spirit, but very right. much like that is Solomon's journey. It's like I don't want to survive; I want to live. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of like finding and preserving something is the metaphor of the violin, which right. he smashes in frustration towards the climax when he can't. When he can't imagine getting out, the moment of him singing communally mm-hmm. um, at like the funeral, which is a moment of him giving himself over spiritually to something greater than himself. Right. But the idea that like in juxtaposition to that, all the slavers uh, and all the white characters are bound by their materialism. Mm. Um, and again, like if you want to tie into religious stuff, the emphasis on carpentry. Tibbetts is right. a carpenter, for example. Right. Uh, Bass is a carpenter, for example. Bass is a bearded carpenter right. um, as well. But like you have this idea that like. Epps' relationship um, with Patsy is this physical thing. It's presented as an addiction. Mm-hmm. He cannot, re- like, he hates himself for yeah. it, where he, like, tries to strangle her mm-hmm. as a way of killing his dependency on her. Right. The, the bit where he's, like, chasing Solomon kind of through the, you know, through the animal enclosure and he's lying with the pigs covered in muck like an animal. Mm-hmm. And, like, this idea throughout the film that comes up, which is the curse of the pharaohs, again, going back to biblical metaphor, but the idea that and I think is it the, the character played by Derek Elahund? Um, is it Ames Arn? What's what's the name of the character? Armsby, where Armsby says like, "Look, this thing that we are doing, this thing, this institution of slavery, like it, it denigrates us. It makes us lesser than we are. Mm-hmm. It it creates this wound within ourselves that we cannot heal and are incapable of processing, and." I think there's something there in the movie with those half constructed houses where it's like America, this nation cannot grapple with this sin. It cannot acknowledge this sin. Like there's the moment when like after when they're whipping Patsy where Solomon has this big like and you will be cursed. You will be judged. You will be mm-hmm. damned for this. Yeah. And Epps is like, I see no sin. You know, there's the, the like the wonderful again, wonderful filmmaking from McQueen, where mm-hmm. as Andrew mentioned, you have the big biblical plague of the cotton worm, but you have this wonderful wide shot of all the slaves working in the plantation and the voiceover of Ep saying, like, what have I done to deserve this? Right. Why does God curse me? <laughs> yeah. uh, failing to grasp like the answer that is right in front of him. Yeah. But like I, I find something very interesting in that. The idea that like 
the bodily suffering of, of Solomon and the suffering and the torture that is inflicted on the flesh of, of these people is, is still somehow, while horrific and brutal and monstrous, in some ways less lasting or less damaging to them mm -hmm. than the scar that is inflicted on the soul of the people and the nation by it. I, I don't know. I yeah, I, I think that's a that's a beautiful way of looking at it. And I completely agree. That just made me want to watch it again. Um, but there's there's one element that I wanted to mention sort of randomly. Um, it's not exactly random, but we were talking about the Ford character. And one of the things that I, I love so much about this film is the fact that it displays the brutality and the quotidian everyday practices of slavery. So you don't need like what you don't have to watch like on Hester through the bloodstained gate from um, Frederick Douglass's narrative life of, of a slave, you can simply observe a moment where Ford gives Solomon the new um, violin. And he says, I look forward to hearing this for years. And he just yes. walks away. And it's like, that is a soul crushing, brutal moment, but it's just an everyday thing to him. Or when, um, when the, the wife, I'm blanking on her name, Mary. Sarah Paulson. When, oh, no. Yeah, when, when she asks um, Solomon if he can read. Yes. And he's like, just a few phrases here and there. She's like, don't trouble yourself with it. It's like, those little moments go a mm. very, very, very long way in showing the quotidian sort of wanton nature of slavery and, and what that actually was and what it looked like. Again, like there's the wonderful observation. Um, I'm trying to think of which film critic it is. Um, it's Joe Morgenstern in Wall Street Journal, where he says, like, this is the defining version of what or defining vision of what slavery looked like and felt like in the US before the Civil War. And I think that's really important to to like McQueen as a filmmaker is that you you feel it. It feels yeah. tangible and tactile in a way that it hasn't always. And I think of like Again, McQueen's use of wide shots where mm -hmm. like that scene where um, Solomon is hanging um, oh under God. the tree, uh, which is Man. just an incredible piece of filmmaking. But what's really shocking about it is that like you hear the sounds of children playing in the background and you're like, oh, is he remembering? Is this like his nostalgia? Right. And then slowly, gradually, just life continues around him. This horrible monstrosity of like this, this atrocity that's just happening, but the mundaneity mm -hmm. of it. Yep. The idea that like everybody here has seen this happen. Everybody here knows that this happens and life goes on around it. There's another moment where like Epps is chasing Solomon with the knife mm -hmm. and like just you can see in the background yeah. all the women and children just quietly go into their houses without drawing attention to themselves. Because again, this is just another day. That, that's yeah, I'm, I'm, I almost hesitate to talk about it. I'll be interested to, 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 to see what you guys think. But the, the, there is a kind of attention and i think like i mentioned it being quite a writerly movie and one moment i was thinking about is in the boat to new orleans there's two characters kind of represented and one of them is clemens and one of them is robert and clemens um this is represents, michael williams um and yes uh, so michael kenneth williams is uh robert and chris chalk yeah yeah, Clemens. and Clemens is, is Chris Chalk. And they represent these two different perspectives and they're very clear on what they represent. Uh, Clemens wants to keep his head down. And Robert he's not interested in the plight of others other than to, to recommend that they follow his 
his his lead. But he doesn't turn back to um, offer salvation to um, Solomon on the boat. To Solomon, Solomon screams no. for him on the boat, and he doesn't. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. That he that he abandons him because that could, I suppose, uh, endanger his own rescue, maybe, mm-hmm. or 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 that he doesn't want to kind of like uh, make a fuss. And there is the, the I I suppose I feel like there is the idea throughout it on kind of some sort of soft complicity versus. Robert's character, who represents kind of resistance, um, solidarity, because he tries to stop the the rape, the, mm-hmm. the, the rape and death. That and that, and that's that's kind of the the choice that's presented to to Solomon. It's like okay, I can keep my um, head down and you know, look out for myself and not get involved in, you know, fighting other people's corners or I can resist and show them solidarity and, and die, I guess. Um, and, and I think he, he, that tension, like those two characters represent those two perspectives. And I, I think it's, 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 it's what you see in a lot of movies that, that, that 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 character then embodies both of those perspectives in tension. I think throughout the movie there are moments where he um, he does resist. Well, with Tibbets, we, for example, we, we, yeah, up to Tibbets. Mm-hmm. exactly. But I I think also to an extent with Epps, and then there are the moments where where he is um, like I I think it's interesting the extent to which. The, the movie appears to kind of get into the idea of and you mentioned it I think earlier with 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 uh, mistress Shaw the idea the idea of like kind of like complicity or yeah uh, mm-hmm. I, I suppose the 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 uncle Tomness of, mm-hmm. of of it all yeah and yeah, yeah but I, I I just wonder what you thought of all of that um it's really interesting because I made a similar point about um, Knives Out, Glass, Onion um, with this idea of like double consciousness. Uh, du Bois writes about what well, he wrote about double consciousness um, in his book, Souls of Black Folk, where he talks about, you know, on the one hand, we all as, as black people need to survive. And that requires us to be less of ourselves. Right. We need to do whatever we can to survive. We can't stand out in any way. Let's just put our heads down and endure this. And on the other side, you have a very clear idea of what needs to happen. There needs to be some sort of redress for whatever's happening to my people. And you have to hold these things sort of coterminously and make these snap decisions on when you want to dip into one consciousness over the other. And I hadn't really picked up on that from Solomon North up until now, but you got me thinking about it. It's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, there's that kind of... I don't know if you call it code switching, yeah. But um, they, but well, it, he has it, the like Eliza has the conversation with him on the on the like the doors on the door where mm-hmm. she's like, "Look, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna smile for Ford. You're gonna tell him the things he wants to hear. You're gonna play the violin for the mm-hmm. fiddle for him. You're just gonna like accept. You're gonna forget your family ever existed uh, in order to get along." Yeah, you know, and yeah. he and he he makes the argument that he's and again like I think. I think that's one of the things that I really find interesting and challenging about this movie is that like 
And I think, you know, Lee alluded there, to it at the start. There are moments be... where he's absolutely not heroic. No. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and it's entirely logical and understandable. Yeah, and it sure. makes sense. And it's... Yeah, 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 yeah no, like, but... We're not but, criticizing. No, no, no. But, I, 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 like, as a piece of Hollywood, like... Yeah. You, it's you, rare. Yeah. That, yeah. You, that you'd settle on a hero and can you imagine going into a Hollywood studio and saying well he's he's going to see these two black men being lynched in the woods and what's he going to do about it and it's like well he's going to keep his head down and he's going to continue on his way exactly um yeah, or at the end where he grabs Patsy, you can you if this were a more conventional Hollywood narrative, you'd imagine it's be like, and then he grabs Patsy and takes her into the car and they ride away together. Right. Um, There's that complexity throughout. Yeah, yeah. That kind of push and pull. And again again, the idea that this is bigger than one person. As much as a as much as we see this through the eyes of one person, it's a systemic problem that won't be fixed by one person. Exactly. There's no easy fix to it. Um, well exactly. that's I, I suppose the difference between well, one of the differences, and and I I I really like uh, Django. Django. I, I I love Django, but yes, yeah. it, is, it is not a complex. I don't I don't think it's as you know. I don't think it's engaging with this material in the way that this is. No, I no. think it, I think it's well, more, it, it's Tarantino's um, kind of thing of uh, you know uh, fantasy visionism, I guess. Yeah, and I mean, I think you know there is a place for that kind of catharsis. I think oh, there is yeah. a, there's definitely a place in cinema for the catharsis. I that agree. Django I offers agree. perhaps of like the fantasy, the revenge fantasy, yeah. much like Inglorious Bastards is kind of the Jewish revenge. Exactly. Fantasy, right? yeah. Yeah. Um, but I also think that there is a place for this as well. And once upon think... a time in Hollywood, yes. I guess. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, for the for the Manson family. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And to be clear, I I like Django a lot as well. Um, it's just Tarantino is Tarantino. And yeah. he's, he's not really interested in anything outside of Tarantino. So every yeah. character speaks just like him. Every scenario is going to go the way he wants it to go. So I have those issues with it and the thematic issues, but I can turn it on and, and watch it really easily. It's, it's super easy watching. Yeah, but I definitely agree with you that there is ways in which that movie Django suffers by comparison to this. And I think, yeah, again, I kind of just mentioned it, but it is worth thinking out. Like, again, one of the big things about Northwood's memoir was now, to be fair, it was uh, written and narrated um, to another writer. Um, it was like it was written with the assistance of another biographer. He didn't necessarily write it himself. He dictated it. But it is very it's written about the first person experience. And you have there's this quote here um, when he talks about that sequence where he's he's being hung from the tree. And again, Lee mentioned so much of this is taken directly from it. Ridley's talked about it being just a blueprint. Um, and he talks about like being hung from the tree. And he's kind of, he's talking about the guy, the, the man responsible, about Tibbets basically. And when he's writing, he just says, whatever motive may have governed the cowardly and malignant tyrant, it is of no importance. My ankles and wrists and the cords of my legs and arms began to swell, burying the rope that bound them into swollen flesh. And I think that, like, McQueen's filmmaking has a very visceral quality to it, where it mm-hmm. it, it situates you in the experience and the physicality of it. Yes. And I think one of the things that McQueen, and, and, and his cinematographer, Sean Bobbitt, who obviously worked on him on all his previous films as well, uh, Bobbitt is formerly a newscaster. I find this, he's a, he was a news cameraman. Um, he actually worked in Lebanon. He did coverage from Lebanon. He's covered war zones and stuff like that. And oh, whenever God. anybody in interviews goes, man, it must have been really tough shooting shame. He's like, no, I was in Lebanon. Um, <laughs> right, just like... to be clear. <laughs> At the end of the day, we went to a restaurant and had a really nice wine together. <laughs> um, but he says basically like one of the things when they were shooting 
those visceral scenes in this movie, they wanted to make sure the audience could always see the faces of the character. And mm. again, this, I think, speaks to something that Andrew said about like this being maybe less bloody than he imagined it was going to be or less gory than he imagined it was going to be or less gory than the torture porn descriptor would have you think where like. I think one of the things this movie does well is as much as it's a movie about systems and structures, it's about like the people and the individuals Mm -hmm. you have, like when Northrop is being beaten, that harrowing sequence at the start when it's like, what is your name? Are you a slave? When they break the wooden paddle on his back, Mm -hmm. the way that is shot is you don't see the breaking of the skin or the ripping of the shirt or the bleeding on his back. You see the breaking of the paddle, but you see his face. You're focused on his face and his experience of that pain, not the celebration or glorification or depiction of that pain. Similarly, again, towards the climax, when Patsy is whipped, Mm-hmm. And again, done in one of McQueen's long takes, which is just incredible, where the camera is zipping around between mm-hmm. the three focal points of Patsy, Epps, um, and Solomon. But like, you see her face. Mm-hmm. You're focused on Lupita Nyong'o's face um, as she's kind of screaming as this is happening to her. I think like that's a really, that's a really important filmmaking choice. Um, between like that distinguishes it from a lot of the torture porn. Um, and just to be clear, I think as well, one of my favorite little details digging into the trivia. There's a shot towards the end of the film where he stares into middle distance. It's just a shot of him underneath a tree and he mm-hmm. looks at the camera. Yeah. And that is that sequence is amazing to me because apparently they shot it in the parking lot of the studio where they were editing the movie. What? So when they were cutting the film together, McQueen, McQueen and Bobbitt and the editor were like, look, this is called 12 Years a Slave. When you're watching the movie, you don't always get a sense of how much time has passed. And McQueen's like, I don't want to do title cards that say year one, year two, year three, because I don't want to create a countdown effect. What we need is we need a shot between like that horrific whipping scene, which serves as like the philosophical, moral, religious um, climax of the movie Mm -hmm. and him being rescued that conveys that it has been this long. So we just need a long shot of Chiwetel Ejiofor's face. So apparently they they got Ejiofor to come back the day before they had to return the cameras, apparently. It was the day before they had to give back the equipment and just went out to the parking lot, put the shirt on him and asked him to just like look into the distance and then look at the camera. And they're like, yeah, that is exactly what we needed. One of my favorite pieces of trivia. That is amazing. About the making of that. I didn't know that. That's like my favorite scene (laughs) in the movie. That's amazing. Wow. And wow. it's a last minute thing. It just kind of came together because it's like we were missing. You're in the edit and you're like, this see- this film is missing something. Let's go out wow. to the parking lot and get it. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I-, I have a question, though, and it's it's probably like unfair. But I was thinking about this last night as I was watching this film. Who in the film industry under the age of, let's say, like 70 has a better eye than Steve McQueen? I'm not talking like dynamic camera. I mean, like you just know where to put the camera and get the image. I'm not talking about like camera movement. Who has like a yeah. better eye for the image than Steve McQueen? Uh, it's, it's it's very. I think it's different because it's more kind of painterly. But I'm thinking like Celine Sciamma is is. I can see that, but but I think it's very different. Yeah. Like this feels more filmic somehow. Yeah, and, and again, that makes sense because his, you know, he emerged as a video artist, yeah, yeah. Um, as well. So he's like, again, very interested in the form. All right, I think we're getting. Towards... What about yourself, there? Do you have any? I was hoping to completely avoid that answer by just segueing <laughs> neatly there. Um, 
I don't know. Like watching these films back to back, I'm like, and again, it's uh, that memory. I would like have that. And again, it's it's one of those hallmarks of a great film is when you go back and revisit them a decade or a decade plus later, you remember shots yep. and you don't even remember remembering shots. You just remember the sequencing yep. of it, like kind of muscle memory or like reptile memory yeah. where it's like, oh, yeah, that comes after this. And I, yeah, there we go. And I know what's coming next. And it's like not something you've thought about. Right. It's not something you've committed to memory. And you're just like, no, that is that is where that shot goes. Yes. That is exactly where that shot. And I cannot imagine that shot going anywhere exactly. else. I know that's technically editing, but like the composition, the framing. Um, I don't know. Like McQueen would certainly be up there for me. Um, yeah. I'm tempted to go like because again I'm tempted to go somebody like Villeneuve but I think like I'm not even that big a Villeneuve fan but I think that when Villeneuve gets his shots right they look gorgeous they are amazing um, but I don't yeah it's tough I think, and, I think... and obviously you, you you have a book about Nolan but you, you're, you're not thinking of him in that conversation <sighs> We don't have ten minutes for me. <laughs> no, no, I, that is true. I, I love, I love Nolan very much. He is my favorite modern filmmaker. His strength has never been framing and composition. Um, right. He is. His framing is clean, efficient. It communicates what it needs is it to. Cold? It is. It is not beautiful. Like yeah. no, it's not cold. It's. It's not that it's cold. I think the cold yeah. criticisms are always stated. But Nolan's, how Nolan works is he points the camera at what he wants you mm-hmm. to see, uh, and it's just staring directly at. Yes. And it's like, have you got it? You got it. And then he'll cut to the next thing he wants you to see. It's like, do you see it? You see it? Got it. Next thing you want to see. Yep. And I think like that's what makes his storytelling so interesting. I think like a lot of Nolan's skill lies in editing and storytelling, where he's able to do these things like Inception unfolds across five different layers of reality. But the large part of why it works is because his framing isn't like particularly delicate. It's just blunt. It's right. like, okay, so we need a shot of Joseph Gordon-Levitt punching a guy in a face <laughs> in the face. We got it. Okay, boom. Yep. <laughs> um, like, and I, and I love I love Nolan very much. But like on the other hand, like McQueen when he's shooting, he can hold those shots for minutes at a time, and it doesn't feel showboaty. Yes. It doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like oh, I'm doing a long no, it, take for the yeah. sake of doing a long take. It feels like no, the camera is just where it should be. Right for this to be happening you know because there's sometimes something kind of like very kind of like male or vain about uh the long take yeah that's it it's like look at what i fucking did you losers (laughs) one of my favorites this is cinema yeah bellatar is one of my favorite filmmakers ever but damn it man i don't want to watch a 12 minute take of cows right like i just don't want to see that (laughs) but that's that's what he does but one one shot i wanted to mention um really quickly uh just as an example of of Steve McQueen's eye and his wonderful collaboration with uh, Sean Bobbitt is in Widows. I know this isn't a Widows podcast, but I can't stop talking about this movie. Um, it's a McQueen podcast. We're- there, there, there you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> when Veronica is mourning the death of um, her husband, the shot is captured through the glass, like in, when, when she's in the yes. mirror. And there's this thick layer of flesh over her, sort of accentuating that, like, the, the reality of her condition. You are a black woman first, and this layer of flesh is, is so thick over the out, outskirts of her face. And almost all of her scenes alone involve like Nina Simone. And if you listen to Nina Simone and, and are familiar with her music and her legacy, it's, it's very intentionally pointing at the fact that we are dealing with a black woman who was left alone um, in, in Widows. And I think that that image conveys that in, in such a beautiful and, and subtle way. Well, not really subtle, but a great way. Salty is overrated in some cases, <laughs> I, to be I fair. Uh, yeah. 
the only other thing I think that really merits talking about here is Lupita Nyong'o. Um, oh this is God. her first American film, and she wins the Best Supporting Actress award for it. She comes out of the gate just amazing. She was studying acting at Yale. Um, she's Kenyan originally, mm-hmm. and this is just like a calling card film, and she is phenomenal here. I think. Yeah, it, I mean, everybody terrific. here is phenomenal, but she, yeah, she stands out among like everyone just on their A game. Um, I mean, for the first. 30 to 45 minutes of the movie before Patsy is introduced. I don't know when she's introduced, but before she's introduced, I was thinking to myself, like, is Paul Giamatti going to steal this entire film with five minutes of screen time? <laughs> and, then, and then, like, Lupita just, oh, my God, she just she, she blew me away. It was an incredible performance. Um, I honestly wanted to see her get more work off of this role. Yes. Uh, she has not been given her due, in my opinion, but this... No, I don't even have the words to describe how great she is in in this role. It's so good. It's crazy, crazy that it's like ten years later, after a performance like this. Um, but also, and after a performance like us as well. Yeah, like, yeah. Like the, that those would be. Oh, enough. Yeah. oh, like it's, yeah, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and again, like this is one of those interesting things where again, this is it's worth noting. This is the year before Oscars, so white. And it's kind of fascinating that like this is a movie that shows first of all how far we've come because obviously you know the first black director to win an Oscar for best picture he doesn't win best director but he wins best picture uh, Ridley the second uh, black writer to win an Oscar for screenwriting uh, Nyong'o wins supporting actress on her first time out but also like immediately after this happens well first of all uh, Nyong'o has talked about how like immediately Harvey Weinstein um, you know very much tried to exploit her, tried to take advantage mm-hmm. of her. But you have this discussion, and like to be fair, she's been quite candid about it as well, where Hollywood had no idea what to do with her. Right. Where she was immediately cast, like her biggest bump coming off of this was playing Maz uh, in the Star oh, Wars God. sequels. And I mean, look, yeah, I, I mean, look, I am fonder of The Force Awakens <laughs> and The Last Jedi and all that sort of stuff, and I think she's very good in those roles, right. but it's like, that's not the role that you give to somebody coming off of this. Right. You're like, what can I, like, you, you should be constructing vehicles around this woman. Yes. And again, like, part of me is like, even, say, the MCU stuff, where it's like, you know, Chadwick Boseman, once in a generation talent, he's phenomenal in that role. Mm-hmm. Uh, understand why he resonated the way he did his unfortunate passing um very tragic mm-hmm. but it's like you look at the cast and the cast of that movie is phenomenal yes. um you know ryan coogler did a wonderful job casting it but you're like if that happens and you're in that situation and you have to pick somebody from that crowd to be your lead and assuming the studio won't let you pick angela bassett for you know ages and reasons right. it's like it's it's got to be nyongo nyongo is like the Absolutely. person i i i saw that uh, uh, Wakanda Forever, and I was so disappointed with yeah. that choice. Same, um, yeah. I didn't know how to articulate it nicely, but yeah, it's like, why wouldn't you? Fo- like, she's clearly the most interesting, besides again, Angela Bassett. But they Marvel's too cynical to ever do that, yeah. Um, but yeah, um, so yeah, I think that that's really then it. And then is it possible maybe that she didn't want it? 
that that I like part of me suspects that may have been it that she was like because she signed on for the three Black Panther sequels I suspect she didn't sign on for the Avengers sequels that's the thing Good where like you, you know the fa- I, I, <laughs> I, I, I hate that every every podcast we do inv- involves an obligatory 10 minutes about Marvel <laughs> but like where like after Wakanda sorry after Black Panther test screened and it, it garnered incredible like scores and they were certain it was going to be a massive hit they immediately went back to the cast of um, Black Panther and were like look we know we signed you for three black panther films but we also want to add two more avengers films on top of it and that's why for example like winston duke gets like a huge role in in both infinity war and endgame for example um and like several other cast members do but a number of black panther cast members are conspicuously absent including daniel kalua um and obviously um lupita nyong'o and the official answer is lupita nyong'o was busy shooting a play on broadway and it's like Given how these things work, you could just fly a green screen background out to her exactly. and make and put her in the movie. I honestly wonder if they just refused to pay her what she was worth. That is my 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 gut feeling is that she maybe took a stand. It was like I'm worth more oh than what you're offering me for this. Well, ladies and gentlemen, um, um, Darren Moody has made me like Marvel less. Um, I didn't think that was possible. <laughs> I, I, I want to say this is just I have no basis for that aside from just like knowing that all the Black Panther cast were offered the contract extensions well, yeah. and she said no. Yeah. One, one, one of my one of my favorite jokes about Black Panther is that Andy Serkis and Martin Freeman, the Tolkien the, white guys, the Tolkien white guys. <laughs> and somehow like Martin Freeman is also in some of these movies as well, uh, is in more movies than the Peter Nyong'o. Yeah. Um, is there and Andy Serkis and Andy Serkis? Um, yeah. No, Andy Serkis is in as many Marvel movies as Lupita Nyong'o. Oh, okay. Um, there's a depressing statistic for you. All right. Uh, is there anything else we want to talk about? So, Lee, in terms of your notes about this movie, anything we we haven't talked about with regards to Twelve Years a Slave that you think is worth mentioning? Uh, no. Uh, thank you for this opportunity. Um, getting that, getting a chance to talk about some of my favorite like books on slavery, some of my favorite ideas from this film. This was great. I had a, a blast discussing this. I feel like at a certain point in the history, I, I don't know like if it's going to be on this podcast. Well, I guess it couldn't be, but we're going to have to discuss widows like in full at some point. Like, I, I swear to God, like I have like two pages of notes for this on widows. And I'm like, well, it's not appropriate for me to just get into it on, on this podcast. So sometime in the future, we, we have to do it. We have been known to go off format. Yes, we have been known to go off format. <laughs> because we realized that if we kept to the structure of the podcast, we'd be finished we'd be in finished like 10 now. years. Yeah. <laughs> um, so and we were we, like, no, this project needs to last forever. This mutual kind of torturing device myself and Andrew have for each other needs to continue in perpetuity so not rule it out i don't want darren to make more friends well (laughs) like outside of the podcast (laughs) (laughs) oh um we we mentioned it back to start the conversation so we should probably uh close the loop on it here anyway but the john ridley um steve mcqueen feud apparently Mm -hmm. the two of them had a disagreement over the script reportedly Obviously, we mentioned they met at a screening of Hunger. They began working together on the story. McQueen had input at various points. Uh, depending on who you ask, he either basically rewrote the script from scratch or he had some suggestions that were incorporated and enriched the end result. Right. But apparently he requested a co-writing credit on the screenplay. Ridley apparently, in his own words, politely declined to afford him that courtesy. And as a result, the two of them seem to be at odds with one another. There's a very famous story that when Ridley won his best adapted screenplay Oscar, he did not thank McQueen. 
Uh, apparently he walked right past him on his way to the stage. And then later on in the evening when McQueen picked up the Best Picture Oscar, he also did not thank Ridley for his work on the movie. Now, to his credit, McQueen has since said it was just a, it was a momentary mishap. He was on stage. He was very stressed. It's a lot of pressure. You know, you're not quite sure what you're going to say when you're up there. Right. Uh, but it is worth noting that there that kind of did cast a little bit of a shadow over the movie's award success. Anyway, Andrew, is there anything you want to talk about with regards to the movie? Anything we haven't discussed or anything jumping out at you? Um, No, like I, I, I feel like we've kind of went through it. Um, Yeah, the, the, the yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 I, I, I don't I don't have anything more to add. Okay. The only thing that I would add, uh, because we asked the question before we went on mic, um, we have to get the obligatory RoboCop reference in. Uh, the obligatory RoboCop reference is that RoboCop is an American Christ story. And we talked about how this is a fundamentally religious movie. Um, so I feel like there is a logical thematic connection to be made there between Paul Verhoeven's RoboCop and uh, Steve McQueen's 12. That is amazing. I was really reluctant. <laughs> <laughs> I love we that. have to bend the podcast format somehow. Yeah. Every movie on the 250 has a robo connection. We're really <laughs> reluctant to do to do our stupid nonsense for this movie. <laughs> that, that worked. I, I'm not gonna lie. That, yeah, that yeah. I love that. All right. What we normally do at the end of the podcast is we ask our guests to recommend something. So something you're enjoying at the moment. It could be something related to the movie, something unrelated to the movie, just something that you brings you pleasure at this moment in time. So to give Lee a chance to think about it, I'm going to ask Andrew to go first. Um, I, I, I don't know if I've mentioned this before. I probably have, actually. Um, but it's in following with my like um, consumption of um centrist dad podcasts um i've i've cdps yeah i've have i'm not a dad yet i haven't 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 started watching yellow i was about to say your yellowstone uh, dvd collection is in the main um uh i i I was listening to empire uh which is uh they did a season on the british empire in india and they had then a very good season on the Ottoman Empire, where there's a lot of discussion, obviously, of slaves and their role in that society. Their new series is on slavery, uh, specifically. So um, they're they're going through it kind of like in in the uh, uh, Roman Empire and with the Ottomans and um, and so on. Um, I enjoyed that. It's uh, William Darimple who who wrote uh, Anarchy about the East India Company and um, Anisha Anand, who's a, a, a journalist. She's very good. I think they make a good um, pair, like in terms of their uh, podcast chemistry. Um, in terms of other Plan B stuff, Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford is very good and is probably underwatched. And it's another just something... one of those arguably the best looking. There, yeah, Andrew yeah. Dominic, there is a question. Although I suppose Blonde is maybe an argument against his careful framing. Although it's, that movie is, to be fair, caref- like very carefully constructed with aspect ratios and frames, to be to give credit, yeah. Um. Yeah. <laughs> we don't have 10 minutes to spend on Andrew Dominic. I mean, we, we spoke about Obama, who recommended this book, and obviously it has a lot to do with slavery. Um, in spite of... Um, the decision to suspend you from school <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, is is uh, team team of rivals. The 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 Abraham Lincoln biography. Doris um, 
uh, Clarence Goodwin um, I enjoyed and I guess in terms of other stuff about uh, uh, I think if 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 the listeners are in America and want to kind of understand this stuff and um, aside from watching this movie and of course reading the civil rights museums in Atlanta but my favorite one was the civil rights museum in Memphis I found it just devastating to visit there and to to like I was in tears that in 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 the place where Martin Luther King was 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 shot dead um I just found it very affecting and you know educational and um so yeah yeah it 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 it, it affected me a lot um, I know that's not the most like accessible thing. If you don't live in a Memphis <laughs> area, um, our very our listener base in in Uruguay is, is yeah. Just I, I I do believe there are lots of good re- other good reasons to go to Memphis. Um, yeah. Um, if so you're, put on your blue suede shoes if you're into yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. If you if 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 you're into kind of music and barbecue food as well, you can do, in, enjoy that. But no. Um, I I I I thought um I think I actually preferred the the Memphis um Civil Rights Museum to the to the one in Sweet Auburn um personally but that was just me. And Lee, what would you recommend? Um Barry Jenkins Amazon Prime show uh The Underground Railroad. Um not enough people have seen it. It is hard to describe how beautiful it is. I mean have you guys seen the Underground Railroad? I have, yes. I have not. It is. I've seen very little stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it is. D- Darren didn't text Andrew and was like, "You need to watch the Underground Railroad on Amazon for Thursday." Darren, you, you got to get on that, Darren. Um, it is. It's it's just a phenomenal series. Uh, it it's clearly in the same tradition of Twelve Years a Slave. It feels like something that would not exist without Twelve Years a Slave, and I feel like. If you watch the film for this episode, um, I feel like the next thing to get into would be the Underground Railroad because it's so similar, not in subject matter, but in its creation. I mean, it's based on a phenomenal book um, and it's very close to the book as well. And it's, it's just incredibly beautiful. Um, and if you don't watch it for anything else, please just watch it for the visuals and the, and the sound. It's, it's incredible. Uh, in terms of recommendations from myself um i would recommend checking out the show notes for this episode i have lots of uh first of all well first of all lee's been phenomenal in this episode myself mm-hmm. i've probably been a bit more stumbly and and uh awkward and uncomfortable <laughs> and not somebody who should really you should really listen to when talking about the subject matter but um there will be links in the show notes to people who have written very 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 moving very good pieces on this i particularly like recommend uh grantland which which went on to wesley morris who now writes for the new york times uh wrote a wonderful piece um about like 12 years of and in particular his idea of the performance of african-american identity um and how he kind of like saw that channel through it he talks about like there was the vma awards with miley cyrus but also with the kanye performance mm-hmm. which featured an art installation by barry Den- sorry by um steve mcqueen um and so like how all this ties together um i would wholeheartedly recommend that there's a wonderful article as well on the same subject by janelle uh, hobson in miss magazine as well um, the the classic feminist magazine as well and there'll be a bunch of stuff in the show notes for people who know what they're talking about uh, and also uh, I'm going to ask him to, to plug his stuff in a moment but I will recommend uh, Lee's video essays as well um, but if you really like the recent one on men 
um, which I thought was just phenomenal, and the one about the Green Knight as well. Those are two of the more recent ones I've really, really enjoyed. Thank you. Um, all right, so Lee, where are you at? What you have to? Where can we find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at cleverly dope. Uh, just stop by. Don't follow. I'm a terrible follow on Twitter. Uh, you can subscribe to my YouTube channel, <laughs> uh, The Fake Critic, um, and I have a podcast coming. I'm one-fourth of a podcast called The Real Ones. We don't have an official release date yet, but just stay tuned. Um, it'll be out soon, and it's pretty pretty good, if I say so myself. Right. Right. Excellent. Sounds really exciting. <laughs> All right. Um, you can find us on Twitter. We're at, at the 250. We're also on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, and iTunes, wherever good podcasts are found. Just Google the 250 and we'll turn up there for you. Next episode, we are going back. We are going back to a weekly release schedule and we are going back to school. I don't have the exact uh, calendar lined up. I don't know whether or not it's going to be next week or the week after, but this is going to be the last episode that we release in August. And starting from the first weekend in September, we are going weekly with a back-to-school season looking at the films on the Irish Leaving Cert curriculum. So we've already covered Wes Anderson's Grand Budapest Hotel. We've already covered Ryan Johnson's Knives Out. So we'll be covering the five films on the Leaving Cert curriculum that we have not yet covered. Those films are in no particular order. Rosie, Lady Bird, On the Waterfront, Diego Maradona, and Mustang. So we'll be covering each of those one Saturday in September. The wonderful Connor Murphy will be joining us to talk about all five of those, and we will have a rotating pool of guests. So please feel free to join us for those. We're really looking forward to it. Thank you so much, Lee. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you no so worries. much, Thank you guys. Thank you. Real really pleasure. Anytime. Anytime. And I'm serious about widows. We're going to talk about widows. <laughs> we, one, you'll find, Lee, that once something has been said yes, on the podcast, it happens. <laughs> there's once a force agrees, to it. Once Andrew agrees, even like jokingly, it happens. Perfect. Um, perfect. But thank you so much. Have a good day. No worries. <laughs>